There were only sporadic gunshots on the morning of April 17, 1975. The soldiers defending Phnom Penh, Cambodia's capital, had all but given up. Their leaders had fled the city days ago, taking the last American and European flights to Thailand before the rebel forces arrived. As the troops began their inexorable march through Phnom Penh streets, a serious-looking man in all black paced around his tent and waited for word of the capital's surrender. He was secretive, and he commanded his rebel troops from the shadows surrounded by security. Some said it was harder to meet with him than with the Cambodian king. His name was Pol Pot, just one of the many aliases he used throughout his life. But it was the one that stuck, because that name, above all his others, would be associated with brutality, misery, and death. His reign of terror can best be summed up by the first two stanzas of the national anthem he would approve a year later. Legend has it he wrote them himself. Bright scarlet blood flooded over the towns and plains of our motherland, Kampuchea. The blood of our great workers and farmers, our revolutionary fighters' blood, both men and women. Their blood produced a great anger and courage. On the 17th of April, under the revolutionary banner, their blood freed us from slavery. Most national anthems glorify struggle and warfare. But the anthem of the Democratic Republic of Kampuchea glorifies something else. Something the Cambodian people would become all too familiar with. Suffering. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're exploring 20th century dictatorships in China and Cambodia. During the first half of the century, Mao Zedong and Pol Pot rose to power on a tide of anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist sentiment. But once in power, their attempt to create a communist paradise resulted in death, destruction, and terror. Today we're looking at Cambodian dictator Pol Pot, the secretive leader of the communist Khmer Rouge, whose regime ended up killing around a quarter of Cambodian's population. This week, we'll see how he went from a well-off farmer's son to the leader of an anti-monarchy rebellion. Next week, We'll explore the consequences of Pol Pot's rule, from forcing the entire country to live as peasant slaves to the infamous killing fields. Finally, we'll see how his unstable alliance with Vietnam led to his downfall. We'll follow the rise of Pol Pot right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Cambodia of the 20th century was a shadow of its old self. Up until the dawn of the 15th century, it was the heart of the Khmer Empire, which stretched from the Gulf of Thailand to Laos and included much of southern Vietnam. But by the 14th century, the Khmer Empire had reached its apex before facing a decade-long stretch of inadequate monsoon rains. The parched region fell into chaos. The land couldn't sustain its people or its government. By 1431, the empire was in ruin. Its capital, Angkor, once one of the largest cities in the world, was all but abandoned. From that point on, Cambodia was a small country fought over by its Thai and Vietnamese neighbors, and then, in 1867, taken over by the French. This so-called French protectorate lasted almost 100 years. But the Cambodian royal family survived the transition. Because royals were widely considered almost godlike by the Cambodian people, the French found it convenient to use them as local puppets. But not everyone was fooled by the sham, and some Cambodians were growing restless under the yoke of imperialism. Pol Pot was born Saloth Tsar on May 19, 1925. Always a secretive man, he would adopt many nicknames throughout his life. His family owned 50 acres of land, which made them wealthy compared to other villagers. They were also well-connected, Pot's cousin was a royal concubine of the king and had borne him a son. Thanks to these connections, Pot was able to travel to Phnom Penh in 1934 when he was nine. There, he spent a year as an apprentice at the Wat Batam Vade Buddhist Monastery. There, Pol Pot suffered through the monk's rigid totalitarian discipline. He woke at four every morning to prepare the monastery for the day's activities. Originality was discouraged, and the ultimate goal was to instill unquestioning obedience in the apprentice. It was an uncomfortable environment, but its tactics were effective. Something Pol Pot noted even as a young child, and remembered when his environment shifted dramatically in 1935 and he went to study at a French primary school. Pot's schoolmates at Ecole Miche described him as full of laughter and fun to be around, but they all freely admitted that he was not good at his studies. He should have graduated from primary school in 1941, but he didn't pass his final exam until 1943 when he was 18. He then attended the Collège Pré Sianouk, where he was also known less for his academic prowess and more for playing soccer and basketball. 
Sports were more compelling to young Pol Pot than national politics, despite the fact that he was in Phnom Penh in 1941. When the king died, 18-year-old Norodom Sihanouk ascended to the throne, and change began to sweep across the country. Sihanouk envisioned himself as a new kind of monarch who could bring Cambodia into the future and out from under the yoke of French colonial rule. He wasn't wrong. In the aftermath of World War II, the political landscape began to change. France allowed Cambodia more self-determination, permitting the creation of a constitution and a national assembly. Perhaps they loosened their grip on the country because of what was happening around it. To the north, Mao Zedong was launching his communist revolution, and just to the east, the Vietnamese were beginning their struggle for independence from the French. Cambodians watched the conflict in Vietnam warily. As much as Sihanouk and many of his subjects wanted out of French rule, the colonial power provided the country with protection against its larger neighbors. If the French were forced out of Vietnam, the future was entirely up in the air. Pol Pot was unbothered by these massive geopolitical shifts. He'd moved on from soccer and basketball to carpentry, which he began studying at a trade school in 1948. It was regarded as the easiest subject, and the teacher generally gave his students good marks. This, along with his family's royal connections, most likely explained how Pol Pot received a coveted scholarship to study radio technology in France in 1949. Where finally, far from home, Pot began to pay attention to politics for the first time. In Paris, Pot joined the Cambodian Student Union, the AEK, at some point in the early 1950s. It was a left-leaning organization, and Pot fell in with a group of Cambodian communists called the Cercle Marxiste. The Cercle was a secret organization which operated in cells of no more than six people. Its goal was to influence the AEK and all Cambodian students in Paris who would one day become the intelligentsia of Cambodia. But they never characterized their ideology as communist. Instead, they supported a simple philosophy, independence. The cells met once a week and read Marxist works such as Lenin's ABC of Communism, the Communist Manifesto, and Mao's On New Democracy. Pol Pot, secretive as always, preferred to remain silent during the meetings and observe. But in reality, many Marxist-Leninist concepts went over his head. He didn't really understand the discussions about labor, wealth, or political philosophy. He would later admit that, by and large, he didn't understand the works of Marx. What he did get out of the Cercle was a sense of purpose. He didn't care for his studies at the Radio Technical School and failed most of his exams. In Marxism, however, he was beginning to see something simple, clear, and appealing. An eternal struggle between good and evil in which he could take part. Pol Pot's favorite book on the subject wasn't anything written by Mao or Stalin, but was instead The Great French Revolution, written by Russian anarchist Peter Kropotkin. Kropotkin explained that the French Revolution was instigated by both bourgeois intellectuals and the popular masses, 
He also wrote that those who owned property were, by virtue, against the revolution itself, and that egalitarianism was the only way forward. Chillingly, Kropotkin also argued that the Terror, a series of infamous massacres and public executions during the French Revolution, didn't go far enough, an idea Pot absorbed unquestioningly along with the rest. He'd found the truth, and with every year that passed, he was more eager to bring his new philosophies back home. As it turned out, the political situation in Cambodia was about to make that possible. Just as Pol Pot was discovering his purpose in life, King Sihanouk's power and influence was fading. In the early 1950s, the monarchy was still propped up by the French, even though the relationship was fraying. Meanwhile, anti-colonial rebels called Khmer Isaraks were fighting in the hinterlands to rid their country of the French altogether. There were also democratic rebels, nominally led by a disgraced former cabinet member named Sun Noctain. This group was more right-wing and held a decidedly pro-American stance. Outside forces were pushing for change as well. The Vietnamese viewed Cambodia as a key ally in their war against the French. They smuggled most of their weapons across the Cambodian border, and to ensure the scheme continued, they wanted a supportive, independent Cambodia. By the early 1950s, the east of the country was not just full of Khmer Isaraks, but also Viet Cong guerrillas and bases, which were busy training Cambodians to instigate a communist revolution. Naturally, the French launched a campaign in the east to suppress the rebels, but it proved to be wildly unpopular and led to protests around the country and within the government. On June 9, 1952, King Sihanouk reacted by assuming direct control of Cambodia's affairs. Back in Paris, the AEK and Pol Pot were violently opposed to what they described as Sihanouk's coup. And Pol Pot, for the first time ever, was moved to document his evolving political views. He wrote an essay called Monarchy or Democracy and published it in the Khmer Student Journal. In it, he claimed that democracy, which was just a byword for socialism, was priceless like a diamond, whereas monarchy was as foul as a putrefying sore. The AEK, however, was unsure if in lieu of monarchy they should support the communists, the Khmer Isaraks, or the democratic rebels. To make a determination, they asked for volunteers to travel to the homeland and assess the various groups. Even though the AEK was left-leaning and the Cercle was communist, the first step toward an improved Cambodia was independence from the French. To that end, the AEK wasn't set on supporting only the communist rebels. They wanted to support those who had the best chance to oust their French oppressors. So Pol Pot volunteered to return home and report back on the strength of the rebels. In December of 1952, he ended up sailing back to Cambodia on the very same ship that had taken him to France years earlier. The ship hadn't changed but the man had. Surrounded by French soldiers en route to suppress his people, Pol Pot finally knew he had found his purpose. He was returning home to become a revolutionary. Coming up, 
Pol Pot positions himself to take control of the Cambodian communist movement. Hi, listeners. If you're like me, you're always looking for the next great podcast to sink your teeth into. Well, here's one I know you'll enjoy. It's the Spotify original from Parcast, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Murden as he examines the formative years and the motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. Medical Murders highlights a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history. Or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman. Or even the doctor who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By 1953, Cambodia was in turmoil. It was gradually being drawn into the Vietnamese war against the French, and several rebel factions within its borders were fighting for Cambodia's own independence. 28-year-old Pol Pot returned to the country under orders from the Khmer Student Union, or AEK, to assess which rebel faction was the strongest. He didn't know what to expect going in, but the situation on the ground was worse than anyone in the AEK could have imagined. Pol Pot visited the Isarak's forces, but found them disorganized and ineffective. One of his classmates visited the Democrat rebels, but found them unpalatable. That left only the communists. The AEK didn't love that the communists were associated with the Vietnamese, who had been Cambodia's bitter rivals for generations. But they threw their weight behind the Vietnamese communists, or Viet Minh, anyway, and hoped that once Cambodia was free, the AEK and Cercle Marxiste would be able to seize control of their national communist movement. In the meantime, they had a revolution to launch. Pol Pot traveled to the Viet Minh headquarters, where the Vietnamese immediately put him to work. Cultivating cassava, and working as a deputy mess officer. It was a bitter reminder of the Vietnamese attitude toward Cambodians. But Pol Pot's charm and pedigree helped him earn their trust, and he was slowly given more responsibility. He taught himself passable Vietnamese and soon became the Eastern Zone Commander's aide. One of his main duties was to help his boss prepare political seminars. In the process, Pol Pot's feelings about the Vietnamese began to shift. 
the fates of their two countries were intertwined. Communist success in one meant communist success in the other. Together, they could win the epic battle of good against evil. Unfortunately, Pot's ambitions were complicated in late 1953 when the French withdrew from Cambodia. It was a huge coup for Sihanouk, who received much of the credit, despite the fact that the French pulled out thanks to pressure back home, where the war in Cambodia was even more unpopular than the war in Vietnam. Plus, the French simply didn't have enough manpower to fight a war on two fronts. They also gambled that by granting Cambodia independence, they'd quell communist sentiment in the country and thus steal a possible ally from communist Vietnam. For the rebels, this all added up to a tremendous blow. Their go-to rallying cry was that the king was a French puppet, and now he'd apparently secured their freedom from the French. Things only got worse when Sihanouk initiated negotiations with the governments of the USSR and Vietnam. He wanted the Viet Minh out of his country, and he wanted the communist rebels to stand down. And shockingly, the Vietnamese agreed. They were busy fighting their own war, and for now, their primary goal was to ensure Cambodia had a friendly regime that would allow them to smuggle weapons across its borders. Without Vietnamese support, Cambodia's first communist revolution was dead before it really started. Rebels were instructed to either travel to Vietnam and continue the fight, or stay in Cambodia and abandon the revolution. But Pol Pot wasn't ready to throw in the towel. As a student of Mao, who he found less dense than Marx and Lenin, he knew that the first step for a colonial Marxist revolution was to overthrow the colonial power. Since that was done, the real work could begin, even if he had to forge the path towards revolution himself. The first step was gathering up whatever communist allies were left in Cambodia, many of them his old friends from Paris. Then together, they created a framework for the communist organization that they were certain would one day take control of Cambodia. Pol Pot was in charge of infiltrating the Democratic Party and attempting to influence them to support communist ideas. Everyone else was involved in secretly plotting to overthrow the government or working for a leftist political party that was really a front for communism. The front party was called Prachichan, or the People's Group, and it seemed poised to achieve some power in Parliament in the 1955 election. The eventual goal was to turn Cambodia communist via the legislature. Trouble, however, was brewing in the form of King Sihanouk. Sihanouk had never fully trusted the United States, which he saw as just another imperialist power. The Democrats, on the other hand, viewed the United States as a possible ally. The Democrats were the largest political faction in post-France Cambodia, and Sihanouk felt threatened. So he made a radical decision. He abdicated the throne in order to run for office as the head of his own party. It was a brilliant move. Conservatives flocked to his banner, and his party was very popular with the peasantry. It was headed by the former king, after all, who still had the quasi-mystical aura of royalty. The Democrats maintained their base and still posed a threat. But they proved no match for Sihanouk, 
who launched a campaign of voter suppression and won control of the legislature by a landslide. In essence, transforming Cambodia into a single-party state. Pol Pot and his allies were frustrated. They began to realize that if elections continued to run like the one in 1955, there was no way they would ever achieve power through legitimate legislation. The only other option was an armed struggle. An armed struggle that they didn't have numbers or the support for. Many former communists gave up. They abandoned the party. But not Pol Pot. To him, there was only one obvious choice. They would just have to wait. The party now became almost entirely clandestine, retreating into the background, forming small local cells, and instructing each of those cells to do everything they could to attract more Cambodians to their cause while keeping their heads down. Most party members lived a double life. Pol Pot, for instance, spent his days as a history and French literature teacher at a private school, but spent his nights meeting with other communists. It was a brave effort, but to Pot's increasing frustration, it wasn't amounting to much. The party was in shambles, due in part to the fact that they had no clearly defined policy or ideology. Apart from vague socialist or egalitarian ideas, their goals mostly stopped at revolution. It wasn't the most inspiring pitch. To truly start a revolution, they needed to rally the people with the concrete promise of something better to come. Things only got worse in 1957, when Sihanouk and Lan Nol, his chief of staff, launched a campaign of terror against Democrats, communists, and leftists ahead of a general election. They harassed left-wing politicians and bullied voters. Predictably, only candidates approved by Sihanouk won seats in the legislature. The already minuscule Communist Party shrank in response, from 850 members to around 250. Something had to be done if the Communists were going to survive, so the party finally convened a Congress to hammer out an ideology and form a real plan to turn Cambodia red, including, first things first, giving themselves a new name. They would henceforth be called the Kampuchean Labor Party, or KLP. They described it as a party of the working class, taking Marxism-Leninism as its foundation, closely linked to the masses, organized on the basis of democratic centralism, and using criticism and self-criticism as its guiding principle. The Congress never defined who the working class was, most likely because Cambodia didn't really have a working class. It was not industrialized, and most of its population were peasants. The country was still essentially a feudal state, with much of the wealth and power concentrated in the hands of a small group of nobles. So the first Congress left some questions unanswered, but two weeks later they assembled another Congress and admitted that their revolution would have to come from the countryside just like Mao's. It would be a peasant revolution. Pol Pot, who long preferred Mao to Marx, wasn't bothered by this. And things started to get even better when the party leadership was elected. He found himself in the third most senior position behind two Samut 
and Nun Chia. This was a new start. They were focused. He was at the helm officially after years of quietly keeping the communist spirit alive. And now, they just had to take down the tyrannical Sihanouk and the feudal regime that backed him to make way for the future. Still, Pot and the communists faced an uphill battle. In January of 1962, Sihanouk and Defense Secretary Lon Nol sentenced 12 members of the Kampuchean Labor Party to death and shut down its newspaper. A few months later, they even captured and executed Tu Samut. The party's misfortune turned out to be another blessing for Pol Pot. He became the KLP's leader in July. But Pol Pot's life was about to take a dramatic turn. Someone had leaked a list of 34 suspected leftists to the government. Pol Pot was on it. And when Sihanouk summoned him to the prime minister's office, he fled into the jungle. Pot was now a wanted man. He'd most likely be killed if he ever returned to the capital, and his fate in the jungle was uncertain. But he was undeterred. He was still convinced that one way or another, whatever the cost, he was going to start a revolution. Coming up, Pol Pot transforms the Kampuchean Labor Party into a revolutionary fighting force. Now, back to the story. 37-year-old Pol Pot began life in exile in 1962, living at a Viet Minh base on the Cambodian side of the border. The conditions were miserable, but he was enmeshed with communist allies. And among these like-minded folk, he never stopped working toward the communist revolution. He spent much of the next two years traveling, during his travels, he met North Vietnamese leaders Ho Chi Minh and Le Duan in Hanoi. He also met with Chinese Communist Party leaders Deng Xiaoping and Pan Xin in Beijing. His main goal was to drum up support and allies for a Cambodian revolution. Unfortunately, no one was particularly interested. At the time, Communist Asia's focus was on the conflict in Vietnam against their arch-rival, the United States. Pol Pot was disappointed at the lack of support, but part of him was also secretly thrilled. After all, if the Vietnamese wouldn't help him, his Cambodian communists wouldn't fall under their thumb, and he'd get to lead the charge himself. In the fall of 1964, Pol Pot set up a headquarters for his coming revolution in the jungle just next to the Vietnamese border. It was called Office 100, and it was host to an assembly where the party began to hammer out yet another official policy. The party under Pol Pot would be slightly different from its previous iterations. Pol Pot had spent the last several years living in the jungles among the peasants, and he had developed a strong distaste for both city dwellers and intellectuals, even those within the lower castes. In fact, Pot assumed that Cambodia's few factory workers had most likely been infiltrated by foreigners and therefore couldn't be trusted. Taking this idea a step further, Pol Pot actually banned factory workers from joining the Communist Party. This ran counter to traditional Marxist teachings. To Marx, workers represented progress and peasants represented backwardness. Most Marxist movements wanted to transform peasants into workers. 
Pol Pot wanted to transform everyone into peasants. To that end, the new Capuchin Labor Party was a party of action, not thinking. They didn't need to study Marxist-Leninist material. They would create their own form of communism, born essentially out of their own ignorance. As Pol Pot later put it, we applied ourselves and then put it into practice without knowing whether it was right or wrong. In essence, they were making it up as they went along. It's hard to say if this vivid, if unconventional, ideology contributed to a marked increase in recruitment. The party's numbers were up to 2,000 by 1965. It's more likely, however, that these recruits were the result of Sihanouk's increasingly repressive policies and some major changes in the country's workforce. Sihanouk had aggressively reformed Cambodia's educational policies over the last few years, but the economy couldn't keep up. As a result, there were 10 times more students than when Pol Pot was in school, but the same number of jobs for educated workers. This meant that each opportunity for a white-collar job received over 100 applicants. Thousands of unemployed, educated students were left to roam the streets, grumbling about lack of opportunity. Furthermore, thanks to a series of bad harvests and high interest rates on bank loans, many peasants now found themselves landless. With no other options, they traveled to the cities looking for jobs, where, of course, there were none. These disillusioned students and peasants were perfect recruits for the Campuchian Labor Party. And Pol Pot ordered his communist cells to go into recruitment overdrive. Despite the fact that he didn't love having to include intellectuals in his party, he knew this was an opportunity he couldn't pass up. But changing membership meant, naturally, the need for new plans. So, at the end of 1966, Pol Pot held another party congress where the communists made three important decisions. First, they were now the Communist Party of Kampuchea, the CPK. Secondly, they moved the party headquarters to the northeast to get away from the Viet Cong. They also agreed that at long last, all party leaders should begin making preparations for an armed struggle. The uprising finally officially commenced on January 18, 1968, when rebel soldiers raided an army post at Bai Damron. The operation, unfortunately for Pol Pot, was a complete disaster. Still, the first stone had been cast. From here on out, Pot and the party's main goals were to assault military outposts in order to steal weapons and to let disaffected peasants know that there was a revolution taking place against the repressive government. To that end, the CPK was surprisingly successful. After an inauspicious start, they managed to steal hundreds of rifles from the government, and by early March, more than 10,000 disaffected peasants had flocked to the CPK. The CPK was most successful in the Northeast region, where by the fall of 1968, they controlled many of the region's communes and villages. By the end of 1968, there were an estimated 1,500 communist insurgents backed by several times more armed peasants. But these successes didn't necessarily mean Pot's revolution was ready to take over the country. 
Most of CPK's soldiers were poor soldiers. If they were trained at all, it was usually in CPK ideology and concepts like the proletarian consciousness, not military strategy or using their weapons. Pol Pot would certainly not be deterred now, when things were finally starting to go his way and revolution was actually happening. Fortunately for the CPK, Sihanouk made a conveniently timed, ill-advised decision. He undermined Cambodia's relationship with China by banning the teachings of Mao, as well as the Mao pins and paraphernalia that had become popular with students. Now out of China's favor, he had no choice but to seek support from the United States, and he couldn't protest when the U.S. began to secretly bomb the Cambodian side of the Vietnamese border in an effort to stop supplies from getting to the North Vietnamese. This choice, along with other repressive policies, sent droves of recruits to the CPK. Finally, Pol Pot had the numbers he needed to wage a full-fledged war against the government. But there was just one problem. After all its raids of military bases, the CPK still didn't have enough weapons to arm its people. Pol Pot and Sihanouk were locked in a stalemate through the end of the 1960s. Each army had enough firepower to repel assaults, but not enough to counterattack. But Pol Pot was once again about to receive some aid from Sihanouk himself. On March 8, 1970, villagers along Cambodia's eastern border began to protest against the Viet Cong presence in their villages. Sihanouk liked the idea, so he ordered Lan Nol, his right-hand man, to create some spontaneous protests in the capital. His misguided aim was to convince the Vietnamese to withdraw their troops from Cambodia. But his plan backfired spectacularly. The protests turned to riots, and by the end of the day, both the South and North Vietnamese embassies were reduced to ashes. Following this debacle, members of the National Assembly brought forth a resolution to remove Sihanouk from power and install Lan Nol in his place. The resolution became official on March 18, 1970. For all his failings, Sihanouk could be a shrewd politician. And in a desperate act of self-preservation, he flew to China, where he announced that he was willing to work with the CPK to overthrow Lan Nol. Pol Pot didn't trust Sihanouk, but the Chinese urged him to consider the former king's offer. They felt it would add an air of legitimacy to the CPK regime. So Pol Pot made a decision just as radical as Sihanouk's offer. He accepted it. Suddenly, the resistance of the people was led by Pol Pot and Cambodia's deposed king. It was an absolutely bizarre situation, and one that would make it impossible for the Phnom Penh government to claim that the communists were foreign puppets. Pol Pot's fortunes changed almost overnight. With Sihanouk in charge of Cambodia, it had been almost impossible to convince Vietnam and China to aid the revolution. But against Lan Nol's right-wing government, which was quickly proving to be very pro-American, it was a different story. And Vietnam's support was exactly what the CPK needed. While the CPK's forces were poorly trained and poorly armed, 
the Vietnamese had been fighting since the 1940s. The Vietnamese carried out most of the fighting in the 1970s. Cambodian troops were only used intermittently on the front lines so villagers wouldn't confuse the communists for invaders. By this point, the only thing propping up Lan Nol's regime was American aid and a cadre of 11,000 South Vietnamese troops. Vietnamese forces began to withdraw in 1972 to prepare for a new offensive in South Vietnam. But Pol Pot and the CPK already appeared poised to achieve exactly what they wanted. Unfortunately, when Pol Pot left his command center to travel the liberated zones, he was furious with what he saw. People were still buying and trading items. Rich peasants still had bigger farms than poorer peasants. Something had to be done. So, following in the footsteps of Mao, Pol Pot decided it was now time to begin the social revolution. They would no longer treat villagers with kid gloves. It was time to declare trade, inequality, gambling, alcohol, unsanctioned travel, and even extramarital affairs forbidden. Land was redistributed so that all inhabitants in each region had the exact same amount. Poorer peasants were obviously thrilled. Wealthy peasants, not so much. But the real problems began when people resisted Pot's new mandates in the liberated zones. In one stark example, after a village had killed three CPK officials, soldiers rounded up three ringleaders and their entire families and killed them all, even children and infants. These moves were intended to snuff out the individual. In Pol Pot's perfect Cambodia, Everyone was a peasant working together with absolutely no thought of the self or ideas of self-determination. All that was left for Pol Pot to achieve his utopian dream was to take Phnom Penh. But that was easier said than done, especially after the 1973 Paris Peace Accords. The Peace Accords officially ended U.S. involvement in Vietnam which made Pol Pot nervous. Aid from China and Vietnam could very well dry up if Cambodia was no longer valuable to them. The two larger countries were already pressuring him to sign a peace deal with Lan Nol. Such a request was impossible. Both sides were utterly unwilling to make peace. In response, the U.S. redoubled their bombing efforts in Cambodia, which was not off-limits according to the treaty. These bombs bought Lan Nol's regime another three years. They also provided the perfect excuse for Pol Pot to enact his own show of force. Claiming they might be struck by errant bombs, Pol Pot uprooted entire villages and marched them to different communes in the liberated zone. No one was allowed to bring any of their possessions. There wouldn't be room for them anyway, as these communes often had 30 or 40 families living together. They were crowded, dirty places, rife with misery and disease. Pol Pot was beginning to reveal his true self, the self he had kept hidden from the world for almost 50 years. He was a man who believed that anything that got in the way of his perfect communist Cambodia had to be eliminated, whatever the bloody cost. In fact, 
things would soon get much worse. In March of 1974, Udang, one of the old imperial capitals, fell to CPK troops. They split the population into two groups, soldiers and officials, and everyone else. The first group was marched into the jungle and murdered. The government lost more land throughout the year until by December, only Phnom Penh remained. It was completely cut off from the rest of the country and barely surviving only thanks to American food drops. Then, on April 17, 1975, CPK forces entered the capital and the war drew to a close. Pol Pot was finally the leader of a unified Cambodia and it only cost the lives of half a million of his countrymen to do it. Nonetheless, there was a sense of relief throughout the capital. The war was finally over. Now things could go back to normal, and perhaps, as the CPK promised, their lives would even get better. They couldn't have been more wrong. The horrors had only just begun. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore Pol Pot's reign as leader of the Democratic Republic of Kampuchea. We'll discuss how his cultural revolution led to the deaths of nearly a quarter of the Cambodian population. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Charles Brock, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Cara Mackerline, and research by Chelsea Wood and Brian Petrus. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Richard Rossner